Well, it's a privilege to join you this morning. I appreciate that uh, invitation. <clears throat> uh, it's a privilege to honor the legacy of Mark Spock. Uh, I think it reminds us of how humbling our jobs are every single day. Um, I think it reminds us that we always have something we can learn. Um, I think it reminds us that uh, we can improve our systems, um, you know, even if a, just a small amount uh, every single day. Um, and what I hope to talk to today, is there a mouse? Let's see, what is, there we go. Um, is about uh, firearms. Let's see, is this, let's see if we're queued. Here we go, I got it. There we go. Um, uh, is trauma, it's some trauma prevention. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about uh, firearms and then uh, how that relates uh, to the pediatric population. And so why are we interested in pediatric trauma? It's not a big, uh, difficult sell for this um, audience, but, but pediatric injury is, is where the money is. So if you want to fix a problem, then fix um, pediatric injury. So one in five children are injured each year. 25% of, of trauma patients are pediatric. So if you work in a pediatric center, quite obviously you're gonna see um, kids. But if you work in an adult-based um, system, you're still probably going to see kids because a quarter of the trauma patient population are pediatric. There are about 8 million ED visits, 17 uh, or 2,500 admissions, sorry, um, 250,000 admissions, 17,000 deaths. So it's an enormous problem in the pediatric population. And then if you like to monetize it, so for the bean counters, um, it costs about $50 billion a year uh, to manage pediatric trauma. And so um, this is trauma mortality. So again, if you want to fix a problem, fix trauma in the pediatric population. So you can see far and away, it's the most common cause of, of uh, mortality in the zero to 19 year old age group, more so than all other diseases combined. And so um, that's the problem we should focus on, not uh, some of these uh, minor esoteric issues that, that bother the kids. So I'm pleased to see that when I graduated from medical school in 1988 until now, there's been about a 50% reduction in, in uh, trauma mortality in the pediatric population. I can't claim all of the credit. I'd like to claim a little, just my very small fraction of it, but um, we've made uh, great strides over those 30 years. If you pull out the little subset of firearms, you can see that it's, it's not an insignificant uh, component of the overall problem and firearm mortality is more important uh, from a numbers perspective than is um, oncology, than is HIV, than is congenital heart disease in the pediatric population. Um, so it's a, it's a uh, significant issue. And if we focus on pediatric injury death, um, and this is data from the National Trauma Data Bank, so this is hospital trauma center data, so these are kids that come into a hospital uh, to receive their, their care. The most common reason they die is motor vehicle. Um, but neck and neck, uh, right behind it, are falls and firearms. So as a cause of mortality in the pediatric trauma population, uh, firearms are a pretty significant cause. If you look at this a slightly different way, um, of kids that arrive at your trauma center, uh, the modality, the mechanism that's most likely to result in a death is a firearm. It has the highest case fatality rate. So it's about three or four times the next highest cause, which will be motor vehicle. So for that patient in your trauma bay, the most lethal diagnosis that they can come in is, is a firearm injury. And you can 
uh, split this even further. If we look at a group of, of kids, these are the tweeners, the 15 to 19. They sometimes end up at our place. They sometimes end up in an adult place. Um, but you can see how important firearms is in this group, and you can see how important trauma in general is in this group. The, the top three leading causes of death in the 15 to 19-year-olds are injury-related. And if you split this down, if you look at the homicide group, 85% of homicides are firearm-related. So 85% of the number two cause of death in, the pediatric, uh, in this pediatric group is from high firearms. And if you look at the suicides, nearly half of the suicides in this group um, are due to firearms. So it's a significant problem. Overall, in 15 to 19-year-olds, 25% of the deaths in that age group will be because of a firearm. So there's tremendous variation uh, across the U.S. It's not the same in all states. So here's what it looks like in the, in the U.S. The sort of average is uh, about 3.57 firearm deaths per 100,000. Um, here's uh, Connecticut. Uh, kudos to Connecticut for um, all the efforts to reduce firearm mortality. So you're uh, at the very uh, good end of the spectrum. I guess if you really love your kids, you'll move to Hawaii. Um, that's the best place to be uh, for firearm mortality. There's probably a lot of other reasons uh, to go there as well, but if you need one final selling point, there it is. And I grew up in Louisiana, and here we are. This is Louisiana. Um, we used to be very thankful for Mississippi um, because Mississippi would always finish 50th in literacy and, and teen pregnancy and everything else, so it was always... Well, thankfully, there's Mississippi, but I guess this time we have to be uh, thankful for Alaska, which is the, uh, the worst state in the nation uh, for firearm mortality. And so um, there are numerous studies which sort of look at uh, firearm ownership and mortality. This is one that looks at it by state, uh, and you can see there's a clear trend um, with uh, higher ownership and higher mortality. Here is, again, Connecticut down here. Um, has a little bit lower ownership uh, and lower mortality. And so there seems a, a correlation. And I, I don't want to suggest that this is just a problem for the United States, um, except for the fact that it, it really is just a problem for the United <laughs> States. Um, if you look at the top 20 um, GDP countries uh, in the world, uh, and then the United States, uh, this is what it looks like for uh, the firearm ownership uh, versus firearm homicide, and you can see all of the other uh, economically advanced um, first world countries are uh, clustered down here at the bottom, and the United States is a dramatic uh, outlier up here. And so if you give firearm data uh, and life expectancy data to an actuarial uh, actuarial, they come up with some interesting um, uh, comparisons. And so here are those same 20 um, top-tier countries, uh, top GDP countries, ranked by life expectancy, and you can see if you want to live long, move to Japan. Uh, if you want to die sooner than next, stay right where you are, I guess. Um, the overall uh, mean life expectancy of the top 20 is about 80.8 years. The life expectancy in the United States is about 2.6 years below the mean for our other peer uh, nations. Um, and if you factor in uh, the component of firearms, it, it's responsible for about a quarter of the death difference between 78.2 and the mean. 
So about a quarter of that time is, is due to the firearms. So if you can eliminate firearms, um, the life expectancy in the U.S. would go up. So um, let's put all, all of this into perspective in terms of firearms. These are all the terrorism deaths on U.S. soil, about 5,000. These are all the U.S. AIDS deaths since 1981 when AIDS was uh, discovered and became an, uh, recognized as a, as a health threat and epidemic, 650,000. These are all of the U.S. war-related casualties, so died in every war, Revolutionary War, Civil War, World War I, etc., 1.1 million. And these are all the U.S. firearm deaths, uh, so it's approaching 1.5 million, greater than all of uh, U.S. Uh, casualties in all of the wars, greater than AIDS, greater than terrorism, um, are, the, are the people that are dying at our own hands or at their own hands uh, by firearm. So the, the things that get all the attention are the mass shootings, and, and so these are the mass shootings during the administration of Barack Obama. Uh, and my definition for, for a mass shooting was five or more um, deaths, not including the shooter. And that's an extraordinarily conservative measure, so the, the definition varies. Most uh, use four. Um, so this is five. If I use four, I, couldn't, I wouldn't have time to make a slide and probably wouldn't have enough slides. And so. Um, he had some very notable uh, mass shootings. This was January 9th uh, in 2011. This is when a, a U.S. congresswoman was shot. Um, here's Aurora, Colorado, when the open fire in a theater uh, screening Batman. Here's Newtown. This, I thought, would be the game changer. Um, I guess I was wrong. This is the uh, head of the anniversary yesterday. Here's the Charleston shooting uh, in the Baptist church. Um, here's the Pulse nightclub towards the end of Barack Obama's administration. And when he was interviewed by the BBC towards the end of his, um, his tenure, he said the one area where he's felt most frustrated um, was that the U.S. is an advanced nation uh, and we simply don't have sufficient common sense gun laws. So he really felt uh, like he, he kind of dropped the ball, couldn't make progress on this uh, single issue. Um, and here we are, uh, next president, Donald Trump's administration. He said some notable ones. This is Las Vegas, the single most lethal uh, mass shooting. Um, here's Parkland, um, which uh, may be a game changer, and I'll talk about that uh, in a little while. Uh, here's the Pittsburgh Tree of Life um, uh, synagogue shooting. And so it, it continues. Um, in Barack Obama's time, there were about four and a half of these mass shootings a year. Now there are about uh, seven. So. Um, it continues to, to be a problem. And um, this is Donald Trump during his uh, campaign. I'll get rid of gun-free zones on schools, and, and you have to, uh, and on military bases. My first day, it gets signed, okay? My first day, there's no more gun-free zones. Thankfully, um, he hasn't followed through with that as yet. And this is what uh, we hope never to see again, and this is the headlines from uh, the New York Times two days after um, Sandy Hook, and it's a, a, a list of, of kids. You would think that a nation uh, that would see this would, would react to it in a different way, uh, but I would, our society has sort of, I think, failed. But this is the problem. So, so Sandy Hook is, is devastating. It's difficult to, to, to read about, to hear about, to see. The mass shootings are, are endless, but they're actually not really the problem. The problem is this every day drip, drip, drip of firearm mortality, every single day, um, the mortality and morbidity from the firearms that we see. This is the uh, Philadelphia Inquirer Daily News from yesterday uh, for Philadelphia. 
Uh, over the weekend, there were 15 shootings, 18 victims, three deaths, and counting still. Happy Father's Day. Bunch of graduation parties gone awry. This is the problem. It's every single day we're getting uh, barraged across the country with, with um, these mortalities. And so uh, when I was the, the chair of the trauma committee for one of our organizations, American Pediatric Surgical Association, um, it was right after Sandy Hook happened. And so the Board of Governors decided that we should update our firearms uh, policy uh, for the organization uh, in light of that um, uh, shooting. Interestingly, the last time it had been updated prior to Sandy Hook was 1999, just after Columbine. Um, and so we, we wrote the policy. It was approved by the Board of Governors, um, but they did something different. So instead of uh, approving it like other policies and then burying it on a website for nobody ever to really see, um, they decided that this was important enough and controversial enough that it should actually go to the membership uh, and it should be voted on. And it should be discussed and voted on uh, to make sure that the membership agrees with it and can support it and that makes it a much more powerful statement. And it was. And so they put out uh, the policy for a period of public review for any of the members to, to look. And then it was discussed and voted on at one of the business sessions at the next annual meeting and um, received overwhelming uh, support. There were a couple um, that were not in favor of it. There were a couple that thought this isn't where an organization should be um, going. Um, but the vast majority thought it was the right place uh, with the right message. Um, and then this was published uh, in Journal of American College of Surgeons to get a much broader audience than um, a website. And so there are a couple things which I want to um, highlight uh, that, are, that came out of that. There, most of the stuff, uh, as you can um, sort of see, is not particularly um, controversial, but I want to highlight a few things that really kind of, I think, fall clearly uh, into the wheelhouse for people who care for uh, firearm-injured children. So before we get there, I'll, I'll frame it um, with the Second Amendment. So all of this stuff has to be taken into context of the Second Amendment. And so this is the Second Amendment, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the rights of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And so for the first 217 years of the existence of the United States, the Second Amendment was interpreted in the context of a militia. And sort of people look at that and say, okay, well, here, regulated militia, that's why uh, we have the right to bear arms. It's, it's because we need to, to have a militia to, um, to fight off the, um, the British in case they decide to come back. Um, and then in 2008, uh, in the District of Columbia versus Heller, um, that all changed. And so um, the way they decided to interpret it was that this first segment before this comma, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the um, security of a free state, is the prefatory clause. Um, the throat clearing, as somebody described it. And the operative clause is the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And so it's sort of that's the operative statement, that's the meat of the statement, that's the whole thing. It was Antonin Scalia who uh, delivered the uh, majority opinion. Um, and what needs, not, needs to, to not get lost in that is, is what he said, um, which is like most rights, the Second Amendment right is not unlimited. It is not a right to keep and carry any weapon whatsoever in any manner whatsoever and for whatever purpose. So there are boundaries. So he clearly stated that there are boundaries. Even though um, it is our right, um, there are boundaries. 
Uh, and so the Heller decision affirmed the individual right. And so you can, you can own a weapon. Um, it, it's interpreted as a private right, not necessarily a public right. Um, it's for law-abiding, responsible Americans. And so that leaves a, a lot of interpretation. And so that's where, as things move forward, there may be interpretation there. Um, the court also identified a list of presumptively lawful regulatory measures. So things that you could say and things that you could regulate about firearms that, that um, uh, would be lawful. It's things like long-standing prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill. So you don't want somebody with mental illness owning a firearm, somebody who was recently released for firearms assault or something to be able to get a, a weapon. Laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools or government buildings. To so those would be um, legal uh, restrictions. And laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sales. So this is uh, the commercial entity rather than sort of private sales. So in the 10 years since Heller, everybody thought this was the end. The Heller decision was going to change everything. Uh, we'll, we'll be back to the Wild West, guns everywhere. Um, it, was, it was seen as a, as a catastrophe. But in the 10 years since the Heller decision, uh, the Supreme Court has declined more than 70 cases challenging Second Amendment laws. They sort of see this as, as sort of settled law. They don't want to take these on at this time. So they have been um, declining uh, to see a lot of these uh, further challenges to uh, Second Amendment. And then in more than 15 or rather 1,100 challenges, the lower courts have ruled on the side of gun laws more than 94% of the time. So uh, it, it hasn't been the end of sensible gun legislation. Uh, and so Heller is, has given some boundaries, but it hasn't been uh, as horrendous as many had thought. So back to uh, those messages which we had brought out in the, in the APSA firearm statement. I want to sort of highlight those, why this is something that we can be uh, focusing on uh, and why it's a, a, a good avenue for us to, to go down. And so for those that are interested in public health research, usually we'll approach it with a Haddon matrix. Um, if you're not familiar with the Haddon matrix, it's a way to take a complex problem and break it out, down into more manageable um, bites. And so the Haddon matrix will uh, break a problem into a host issue, an agent issue, and the environment. And you can, in some cases, divide the environment into a physical environment, social environment. And then it's also going to look at things that you can impact pre-event, things about the event you might be able to impact, and things post-event that you might be able to impact. And so by breaking it down into these smaller clusters, you may be able to, to chip away at the, at the problem. And so the, the quintessential um, Haddon Matrix public health uh, problem um, that's been studied is motor vehicle crashes. And so just to walk through what, what the Haddon matrix would look like, so the host uh, would be the driver, the agent would be the vehicle, the environment would be the roadways and weather and things like that. So something pre-event uh, and the host that you might do uh, to positively impact that would be education, driver's education, um, you know, teaching about uh, not getting behind the wheel when you're drunk. Things about the agent itself, about the car. Um, the, the motor vehicle industry has been very... Uh, forward thinking and trying to make the car a better place. Um, so pre-event, it might be collision avoidance, all those things where it jams on the brakes when you get too close to the car in front of you. It's, it's quite startling if you're not expecting it, but um, it's trying to keep you from uh, getting into an accident. 
So uh, the event, the event has happened. How can we mitigate injury? Well, um, airbags is a, is a great example. It didn't stop the event, but uh, because the event happened, it's, a, it's an effort to minimize the injury. And then there's the post-event, and so that's OnStar or something like that. You're rolled over in a ditch, uh, and OnStar comes. I see you are upside down. How can we help you? Um, and so that's something to help mitigate injury. From a physical uh, modification, it might be those rumble strips on the side of the road. So you are veering off because uh, you're falling asleep or texting. Um, and it reminds you that you need to, to get back into the middle of the road. Some of the social things ahead, it might be modifications in the environment such as DUI laws and, and sort of social stigma about that. Um, and the uh, modifying the event might be use of seatbelts, right? So put on your seatbelts to mitigate injury, lessen uh, the blow. That also may fall into social where, you're, you know, where your kids tell you, mommy, you need to put on your, your seatbelt. Um, and then something in the physical environment, the, the event happens. It, um, you've ever seen it if you're on a highway and it sort of splits and there's those little barrels right at the, at, the, at the junction. Those usually have something in there to lessen impact. Like many times they're filled with water. And so it just absorbs a lot of the energy so the energy isn't transferred to you. Um, and so that's one way to dissipate energy and mitigate injury. And this is kind of where, where we live, these, uh, this star right here where we're the event has happened, we can't roll it back, um, but we can improve our care. So improvements in trauma care would be here, and physical environment improvements uh, post-event might be access to care, getting right person, right place, right time kind of thing. And then um, social post-event thing, EMS funding, keeping them, something like that might, might fit there. So you've now taken an unbelievably complex problem, broken it down into manageable things. You can ask the the um, car manufacturers to address these issues. You can mandate some education here. You can um, uh, legislate having a trauma system to get that patient into your, your trauma center. So this is a great example of, of how a had matrix can work. And so here's what, what it looks like um, in terms of, of uh, results. So from the last 30 years, last three decades, we've seen a 16% decline in motor vehicle uh, related fatalities. That's, that's great progress. Here's what's happened in the same time frame with firearm related mortalities. We've seen a 21% increase uh, in that same three decade period. And then what makes this improvement in, in motor vehicle um, safety even more dramatic is at the same time, we've had a 67% increase in the vehicle miles traveled. So not only have we seen a dramatic decline in, in mortality, it's at the same time there's a dramatic increase in the vehicle miles traveled. We're on the road more and we're dying less. So that's uh, generally a good thing. Last five decades, mortality has declined from five deaths per uh, vehicle mile traveled, billion vehicle miles traveled, to one death per billion vehicle miles traveled. And if we had done nothing, no efforts to try to improve motor vehicle safety, um, then the vehicle fatality rate would be about 715,000 deaths per year um, based on uh, what the mortality was back in 1921. So if you project that forward with no changes, that's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of deaths. So let's uh, apply this to firearm injuries. Well, here's host and pre-event. We can have educational programs. We can teach kids how, how not to play with guns. We can teach them how um, to, uh, to, to handle them with care. 
Um, some of the physical things pre-event might be um, mandating gun locks or providing gun safes, things like that. Um, social things might be some legislation, CAPS laws, child access prevention laws, um, sort of legislating how to uh, care for a weapon. So the event has already happened. Um, how can we protect the host? Well, we could buy some tactical uh, armor for your child. This actually exists. Um, so send them to school in a, in a vest. It goes well. It comes in different colors. It matches their school uniform. Um, and this is a uh, bulletproof backpack. Um, it's meant to be a little bit oversized, and if there's a shooting, the kids can crouch down, and, and this protects them in part. Um, so there are things you can do. It's, um, it's a little sad. Um, and then still have uh, optimized care, so we can do a better job of caring. We, we strive to do a better job of caring. Um, we also want to improve our trauma systems. Again, right, right, place in, right person, right place, right time kind of thing. This is one of the problems though. The agent, so in this analogy, it's the firearm. We can really do nothing. So all things that we use every single day, for the most part, are regulated by the Consumer Product Safety Commission. And so they can say that this teddy bear isn't safe because it has buttons on it that might pop off and a child can, can choke. And so, you know, uh, you can't have that. Um, or the, the foam stuffing of the little bear is, is um, toxic. But there is no entity which can look at a firearm and, and say this design is, is not good, it poses a risk. Um, and there's no entity and there's no, you can't uh, sue firearm manufacturers um, except in cases of egregious um, uh, maldesign. So we really can't change the agent, um, which makes this uh, had matrix at a minimum incomplete. Um, but also, uh, perhaps, uh, it's going to be very difficult to make uh, tremendous strides um, without some of that. There is, there's a lot of stuff we can do, and we still need to be approaching that, um, but there's one glaring uh, deficiency. And so that's what we can do from a public health perspective. This is a public health problem, certainly in my mind. Um, we should be approaching it that way. So uh, <clears throat> the second um, thing that which we advocated for in the policy statement was firearms and mental health. Um, suicide ranks as the 10 most common cause of death in all of America. Um, it's the third leading cause of death in, in our youth, 10 to 24, third leading cause uh, for our youth and young adults. And it's estimated there are 25 suicide attempts for every completed suicide. So um, only about 4% of suicide attempts are, are successful. The problem is um, the use of firearm results in fatality 95% of the time. So when the firearm is a mechanism chosen, it's not 4%, it's 95% of times it's gonna be lethal. And firearms are utilized in half of the completed suicides, and it's a leading method of completed suicide in children uh, 10 to 19. I sort of showed you the statistic, it's about 45 to 49% um, uh, cause for, for suicide mortality in the pediatric uh, age group. And the other thing, that the naysayers will always say, well, they'll just find another way. So it doesn't matter, don't, don't take my guns, don't, don't do this, they'll find another way. The fact is 90% of those who survive a suicide attempt do not ultimately die of suicide. They don't. So it's not that they're simply gonna, well, I don't have a gun, so I guess I'll try pills or I'll stab myself to death or I'll jump off a bridge. 90% don't ultimately die. Modus adolescent suicides occur in the home with a firearm owned by the parent. And so that uh, firearm purchased for 
recreation or um, safety, um, most of the kids know where that is. They know how to get access. Either you've granted them access because you want them to be able to, uh, to protect the household or they know where it is when you've, you've hidden it. Just think of Christmas. Kids always find the presents. They always know where everything is. Um, so they know where the weapon is and they probably know how to get access to it even if you've hidden the key or not provided the combination. So kids usually know. And many youth suicides are very impulsive. So the time from action to, to event may be less than five minutes. They're despondent. I want to kill myself. There's a lethal means, easily accessible, and it happens. And so at, at least putting some barriers and, and something that may delay it, give time to intervene, give time to think about it, <clears throat> may be uh, a way to, um, to eliminate that mortality. Um, and as I said, suicide mortality may not be reduced with trigger locks and gun safes. One, because they may know where the key is to the lock, they may know the safe uh, combination, um, or you may have provided. You, you intent was to allow them to know how to find the weapon to protect the household, um, but you've also uh, granted them access to a lethal means. Uh, and so it's all about lethal uh, means reduction. And so there are a number of studies which look at both firearm um, mortality and uh, for suicide and homicide in the home. This is just one of those meta-analysis, pooled all the data, um, looking at firearm accessibility and the suicide risk um, to household members. And so if you have a firearm in the home, uh, it was shown that the overall risk of uh, suicide in that home is 3.2 times greater than in homes uh, without. And uh, homicide, the pooled risk is about twofold greater of, ha of a homicide occurring. Uh, in that household if there's a firearm over a household that does not have a firearm. Uh, and then this just demonstrates the firearm accessibility and suicide risk in households um, that it's, it's not simply, uh, well, it's the easiest method or they would do something else. So as gun ownership goes up, non-firearm suicide deaths do not go up. Um, so other means do not go up. As gun ownership goes up, firearm suicide does increase. So there's a correlation between ownership and firearm suicide. There's not a correlation between ownership and um, non-firearm suicide. So it's, it's the, the gun is the uh, variable here which makes a difference. So I think that there's you know, pretty easy sell to say that there's a lot of stuff that we can do uh, from the mental health perspective to uh, decrease this this problem and so I think that's a an, an easy sell um, conceptually it may be a difficult sell financially uh, but it's an area that we need to work on and so firearms and research funding so academic centers we're all about doing research under, understanding a problem it's how we think evidence-based practice for almost everything you know the research and sciences is how we work and how we make advances um, but the research funding has been uh, restricted so Back in 1992, the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control was established under the CDC. Um, one of the early studies that they funded uh, was a study by Art Kellerman and colleagues, um, and they showed that keeping a firearm in the home increases the risk of homicide by a factor of three. Uh, and this was a pretty provocative um, statement, uh, and it immediately uh, garnered the, uh, the wrath of um, the NRA, and he himself became a target um, the research became a target, the CDC became a target, um, and in the 1996 um, annual spending bill, uh, they added the Dickey Amendment, which um, 
uh, introduced legislation, introduced language which cut $2.6 million from the CDC's budget and strictly forbade the CDC from using any funds to advocate or promote gun control. And so not coincidentally, $2.6 million was the exact line item for the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control. It was a, a clear message um, about um, research uh, into firearms. But it didn't stop research, so research continued. Um, it continued uh, with funding from private sources in many cases. So uh, this is Doug Weeb who did uh, his with uh, money from a private foundation. And he estimated that 40% of gun-related homicides and 94% of gun-related suicides would not occur under the same circumstances had a gun not been present. So if you had removed the firearm from the household in these settings, um, you would have eliminated uh, these deaths. Um, and this is uh, Miller and the Harvard Injury Control Center, so they're funded through the hospital and private uh, contributions. They showed higher, higher household gun ownership correlates with higher rates of homicide, suicide, and unintentional. So if it's in the house, as a, you're increasing the risk. Uh, again, Miller, more than 90% of suicide attempts with a gun are fatal in comparison to only 3% 3, 3 uh, of those from other means. And so this just uh, also demonstrates the, the lethality of the, of the means. Um, and then a guy, Charlie Brannis, uh, who's at Penn, um, uh, does a lot of uh, research into firearms, did more in the past. Um, and he was working on uh, correlation between alcohol outlets and firearms. And one of the side studies he did was investigating the link between gun possession and gun assault. <clears throat> it wasn't the primary objective of the grant, which he was, had received, um, but one of the studies he did with the data he collected. And he saw that people in possession of a firearm are four and a half times more likely to be shot in an assault. It's actually not that surprising. I mean, it, it sort of makes sense. So if you're brandishing a weapon, you're probably brandishing it because you're worried. If you're worried, then um, you bring a firearm. It's sort of, you're putting yourself in a circumstance where there may be uh, uh, likely to be an assault to begin with. Well, this didn't go over well. It was funded by the National Institute for Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, which was a branch of the NIH. And two years later, Congress extended the restrictive language to all departments of, of Health and Human Services, not just uh, the CDC. Um, so it included the NIH, uh, and this was in the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2012. <clears throat> and so here's what that looks like um, when you look at the firearm, and when you look at um, research spending in the U.S. And so here's what we spend on, um, on cancer research. And so this was compared to the years of potential life lost. And so <clears throat> that's simply if the life expectancy is 75 and somebody dies at the age of 60 from cancer, that's 15 years of um, uh, potential life lost. If you're 25 and die of a firearm injury and should have lived to 75, that's 50 years of potential life lost. And so this is just a metric that uh, puts all of that together, so it looks at the potential years of life lost each year from whatever um, disease or mechanism you want. And so um, we spend about uh, $8 billion a year researching cancer, and for good reason. There's an awful lot of potential years of life lost from uh, cancer. And we spend about $4,000 a year, uh, we spend about $4,000 per year of potential life lost. And so just to put it into context, and here, down here, are uh, we, there's about 
uh, 700,000 potential uh, life years lost, and here's what we spend. It's about $2.70 per year of potential life lost. 4200 $2. So it's a pretty significant um, difference in, in how we allocate research funds. And this is not at all to impugn what we spend on, on, on uh, cancer research. That's money well spent, making tremendous strides. It's to impugn what we don't spend uh, on firearms research. And so um, it's gone back and forth when, when uh, Barack Obama was president. He signed an executive order saying the CDC should um, free up money to study this problem. The problem was Congress didn't allocate that. So he can say this is good, but money is allocated by Congress, and Congress didn't allocate the money. And so that executive order uh, sat idle. And so there's been increasing efforts uh, to, to right that wrong, get some money. Um, there, there probably is money that's, that's coming um, for it. One of the other problems, though, is you've killed off at least a generation of researchers. What researcher in their right mind would make a career out of firearms research when there may not be funding. So you may not be able to get research. So nobody's doing it. So there, there isn't a pipeline of, of researchers that are uh, coming up and can study this. Um, it's going to be a, be a dearth. So even if money is made available, the researchers to, to take that problem on, um, it may take a while to build that back up. Um, now I want to talk about the physician-patient relationship. And so, um, there's been uh, legislation trying to limit what the physician could do uh, in relationship to the patient in counseling. Many organizations, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the East for Trauma, American College of Physicians, and others recommend counseling uh, parents about the risks and benefits of keeping a firearm in the home. Not saying you've got to get that out of your home, just saying if you choose to have a firearm, just understand the, the risks. If you choose to have a firearm and you have a child, here, here are the risks. They can put that into context of their own situation and decide whether uh, it makes sense for them, how they want to store it, and, and, and the like. Um, and the majority of, of gun-owning parents feel this counseling is appropriate. So um, when parents were queried, they agree this is reasonable counseling. We talked to them about poison and keeping poisons out of their uh, control. We talked to uh, about alcohol and, and things like that. So this is... Um, it should be a natural uh, part of counseling as well. So several states have tried to enact legislation which um, prohibits uh, physicians from, uh, or healthcare providers, not just physicians, from um, speaking with patients about firearms. And so this is the Florida Firearm Owners Privacy Act. A healthcare provider or healthcare facility shall respect a, a patient's right to privacy and should refrain from making a written inquiry or asking questions concerning the ownership uh, of a firearm or ammunition by a patient or by a family member of the patient or the presence of a firearm in a private home, other domicile, yada, yada. So saying you can't talk to the, the patient about the firearm, you can't ask them if they have a firearm in the home. The penalty for violation, uh, you can lose your license to practice medicine or be fined up to $10,000. Not, not inconsequential for a day-to-day -day conversation with a, with a family member. And so this was uh, immediately brought up to the uh, Florida uh, Court of Appeals. They turned it, overturned it, and said, you know, that doesn't uh, make sense. It then the state of Florida, who wrote the law, took it to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, 
and a three circuit three three judge panel of the Eleventh Circuit um, uh, ruled in favor of the state. So put this back into into place. It then went to the full Eleventh Circuit Court of Appeals, and and this particular um, uh, fight was called Docks versus Glocks, um, and the Eleventh Circuit on Bonk, so the whole court uh, favored uh, uh, ruled in favor of the of the uh, doctors against this. And so, uh, as I understand, it's still not in effect because of this most recent uh, ruling. Uh, I don't know if they're going to push that uh, higher or not. Um, this was the only one that got quite this far. Um, but there are others from other states which have had the same uh, idea, which is to limit the, the conversation. You could just make it a part of your practice and say, um, if there's a firearm in your home, here's what you might consider. So there were ways kind of around it, um, but you couldn't ask whether you have a firearm and, and base it on that, base further discussion on whether they have a firearm. So it's just the concept of the government kind of interfering with, with how a, a, you relate uh, with your patient to counseling and things like that, which uh, really we think have no... Um, no role. So what can we do? Big problem, daunting problem. If this appeals to you, this is important to you, we can advocate for change. Um, I think we in the healthcare profession have a very unique and powerful perspective. These are our patients. So we see these patients, we see these families, um, we understand this uh, better than, than most. Um, and so I, I would argue that, that we are the exact people that should be uh, advocating. We're the ones that should be sharing uh, the stories and getting that out there. We can work together with, with others that share similar goals, so magnify uh, the voice. Um, the policy statements, such as the one that the apps have put out, are, have been mirrored by many other organizations, and they act as resources, uh, and we can use them to help um, promote uh, efforts. Um, I'll, I'll highlight briefly some efforts of the American College of Surgeons uh, Committee on Trauma. Um, and they are one of the leading, um, it's one of the leading surgical uh, groups and the Committee on Trauma is one of the leading um, entities that help regulate trauma systems, trauma care, trauma centers. Um, and they did a survey of their membership. So there's about 200 surgeons across the U.S. Uh, that are members of the uh, Committee on Trauma. And they held a, a, a town hall to discuss firearms. Um, and then they held a special session on, on firearms at the uh, annual meeting. Earlier efforts had failed when some members, very vocal members, threatened to quit when um, they put out a policy statement uh, about firearms. And so there was concern that further efforts uh, would just incense part of the membership and we shouldn't go there. Um, but thankfully, mainly due to uh, the chair of the Committee on Trauma, Ronnie Stewart's efforts to continue to bring this up, um, he actually looked at the membership, asked the membership um, how they feel about this. And so these are just simple questions that they ask. Improving mental health, is this something we should be doing? Um, increasing penalties when guns are provided illegally, so straw purchasing, background checks. You can see that there's at least majority support for every single um, question. And in fact, there's overwhelming support for the vast majority of things. So this actually is something that we should be doing. So this was just the Committee on Trauma, the subset of the American College of Surgeons uh, who are surgeons focused on trauma. It also translates to the, to the 
overall membership of the COT when this same survey was done with a larger group. So it also holds for uh, the, the American College membership and all. So they feel it is something that we should be doing. And so they've taken it uh, a little bit further and earlier this year um, they held a summit uh, with 42 organizations to sort of say, we, we, you know, we need to speak with a, with a similar voice. We need to have um, sort of an agenda and an um, organized effort going forward. Brendan Campbell was uh, very intimately involved with this effort and still is involved with a lot of the efforts in, in uh, gun violence prevention and uh, is the voice on, the, on those committees for the pediatric group. So it's a very important um, role. And the, the sort of focus here was really, um, it's a freedom. Owning, owning a firearm is a freedom. It's protected. But we need to do this responsibly. And our message should not be trying to, to take away or curb that freedom, but how can we um, encourage responsible uh, gun ownership and, min and mitigate injury without um, limiting that freedom. And so there, there are a lot of people in the community uh, in the medical community who are out there who are um, promoting uh, this is Peter Masiakos who's a one of the pediatric surgeons at Children's in um, uh, Boston uh, and he published this uh, piece in New England Journal of Medicine called The Quiet Room and this is something that anybody who's cared for uh, families of firearm victims know and it's that little room that's usually close to the trauma bay where you sit down with a family and you tell them that you did everything you could, but it wasn't enough. Um, and this just talks about uh, the quiet room and, and, and trying to get away from that. And then many other organizations have published policy statements. Uh, this is one from American College of Physicians, and this was uh, American um, uh, Internal Medicine uh, Group. And interestingly, right after this paper, uh, which came out in 2018, um, reducing Firearm Injuries and Deaths in the United States, a position paper from American College of Physicians. Um, the NRA tweeted out that someone should tell self-important anti-gun doctors to stay in their lane. Um, half of the articles in the Annals of Internal Medicine are pushing for gun control, not exactly true. Uh, most upsetting, however, the medical community seems to have consulted no one. So they told us to stay in our lane. And this, um, for those who follow Twitter, it was a, a, a tweet storm. Um, one of the most notable ones came from Joe Sacron, um, who said, this is my lane, and fired off several um, tweets about how we, this is exactly where she would, we should be, um, and kind of coined the this is my lane hashtag, this is our lane hashtag. And Joe Sacron uh, is a very interesting um, person because he's not only a, a trauma surgeon um, at a busy trauma center who cares for trauma victims, firearm violence victims all the time. He was shot when he was 17 in the neck and you can, if you see his neck, you can see a little bit of a scar um, peeking out from his shirt collar. He has a scar that extends all the way down his neck uh, and chest. Uh, he almost died on the table from a carotid injury. Um, and so he's here to, to tell. And, and he says each and every one of us has a story, and I would say that's, that's true. Each of us that have cared for firearm victims have a story. Um, and we should share that story uh, going forward. And so these were some of the, the tweets that were coming out. Uh, for the, this is my lane, this is our lane, and it's, it's uh, mostly surgeons and nurses and practitioners um, who are dealing with this every day and sharing uh, what they see uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. There are a lot of grassroots organizations which I would encourage you to, to get involved with if, if this is something you're interested in. Um, locally or near locally, Sandy Hook Promise has been very active. 
um, uh, since the shootings, and they're working with schools to mitigate it. March for Our Lives sprung up after Parkland shooting, and they've actually been, I think, amazingly um, successful at organizing our youth, communicating with the youth through social media, um, and organizing the youth, telling them this is their problem. I think what really organized them is they realized this is a problem that adults completely fail at. And so maybe this is something that they, as a younger generation, can succeed. And so they've taken it on with a vengeance and have been very successful in, in voter registration, getting people out to vote with that registration. And so um, I think they may make a difference over the, over the next few years. Moms Demand Action is a grassroots group, mostly moms. They're, they work at um, a local level, state level, uh, fighting this problem. Every town for gun safety is, is a group mainly of mayors or grew out of uh, mayors of big cities interested in firearm violence. And so there are a lot of groups that you can, that you can work with. So just to pull relatively disjointed things back together a little bit, children aren't immune. Hopefully you see that the, this is a, a pretty big problem in the pediatric population. Um, we need to understand the problem if we're going to craft solutions. That's just how we're wired. So whether it's through public health, whether it's through funding, both, understanding, we need to understand the problem to best deploy resources, whether those are monetary or, or, or people resources to fix the problem. I think we in the healthcare profession um, have a unique and powerful perspective. We are the people that should be championing this problem. We're the ones that need to share the stories and make sure that, um, that our patients' voices uh, are heard. Um, and I, so many of the, of the aspects of this problem are, are just, they're not controversial, really. Background checks, 90% support for that. Why isn't that a law of the land? Um, so many of these things uh, should be out there. Mental health, there, there are things which should just happen today uh, because there's support for them. I would say advocate for change where you live. So if you're interested, uh, find <laughs> grassroots. Because as you know, the stuff's not happening at the federal level. It's just stagnant at the federal level. Things keep happening at the, at the local and state level. So that's where you can potentially, uh, are most likely to be able to make an impact while you're waiting for something at the uh, federal level. And this is gonna be a long battle. It's gonna be, it's been a problem that's, that's cropped up over generations, not over several years. Uh, so it's gonna be incremental generational change. It's not gonna be fixed in my lifetime, I don't think. Um, it's, this isn't New Zealand after all. Um, so we need to make uh, generational, uh, you know, need to dig our heels in and then persist. So I think what happens most of the time is that a horrific thing happens, Columbine, everybody's up in arms, and then the enthusiasm wanes, and then Sandy Hook, and then it wanes. And so we simply need to persist. And I think there are several of these organizations that have really, um, I think, dug in their heels that are going to be here, and I think that's going to make an enormous uh, difference in the long haul. Uh, so be there for the long haul. That's all I have. <laughs>